Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we're talking to the author of the new book, An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. Uh, You also know him as the author of the Washington Post blog, The Plum Line, Greg Sargent. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, You are writing from a uh, left-of-center perspective. Right. Uh, grappling with what the Trump presidency is doing to the fabric of our democracy. Uh, how would you uh, distill your sense of where uh, Trump has taken American democracy and what do you think Americans should do in response to that? Well, I think Trump has really sort of hastened and, and exacerbated a lot of trends that were already running. Um <clears throat> the case I make in this book is that that it's unfortunate that it took a figure as menacing and openly hostile to democracy as Trump to focus everyone on the health of our political system, when in fact our problems long predate Trump and will outlast him. And so the case I make here is that we need to find a way of kind of capturing this pro-democracy energy, if you will, that Trump has unleashed um, around the country and, and among many people who have never been engaged at all and have, have never even thought of a lot of these issues, about a lot of these issues before. We need to hold on to that energy after he's gone so that we can actually continue improving our democracy without him there to galvanize those sentiments. We shouldn't need him there to galvanize these sentiments is, my, is the argument I make. Now, uh, what Trump has been doing, you, you talk about how Trump affects um, the political process, how Trump affects uh, the media, uh, and uh, there's been an ongoing debate amongst rank-and-file Democrats and amongst uh, political scientists, when you delve into this in the book uh, very uh, deftly, uh, whether we should be worried about our small D democratic institutions broadly and, and not follow Trump into the abyss of weakening them. And the other argument is uh, more of a fight fire with fire. If, if, if Trump's going to uh, involve these crude power grabs, uh, we need to seize power and consolidate power uh, once the opportunity presents itself and, and, and not be a bunch of goody goodies about it. Um, uh, how is that a fair summary of the debate that you are exploring? And, uh, and if, so if you would characterize it a little differently, say so and, and try to sum up where you come out on that debate. I think the fight fire with fire um, description is apt. And, and here's where I come down on it. I basically, after really trying to grapple with this in a serious way, I've concluded that there's no, it's really not easy to answer. 
And what I try to propose is kind of a broadly defined equilibrium that we might all be able to agree to. And, and that's as follows. We, you know, Democrats, if, if they take power soon, you know, the White House and Congress will have some choices to make about things like the filibuster and court packing and so forth. And what I argue for is that Democrats can't unilaterally disarm. They are going to have to escalate where where it really is appropriate. But I argue that at the same time, Democrats have to stand for an ideal of fair play in politics. And I, I use the word ideal on purpose because it's something that's sort of hard to define and hard to achieve in practice and is usually something we move towards through kind of fitful experimentation and the refinement of institutions and so forth. And so I firmly believe that Democrats and progressives should stand for better democracy in this sense, too. They have to find the right balance between escalating where appropriate and trying to de-escalate kind of opportunistically where possible. And, and I think there are clear areas where that can be done. Voter suppression, gerrymandering, possibly the Supreme Court, although that's a much heavier lift for all kinds of obvious reasons. But if we progressives stand for that, I, I think we're on paradoxically more solid ground when we do escalate. You know, we can essentially move to try and take certain weapons of procedural warfare off the table for the good of democracy more broadly. That entails things like moving towards some form of nonpartisan commission to do redistricting. You know, I, I really I'm being very broad and general in, in a lot of this stuff, as you probably noticed. It also entails holding out the possibility of compromise on voting, right, on voting access issues. I, I think there are ways that Democrats can stand for a kind of a compromise that would combine agreement on voter ID, provided it's designed so as not to disenfranchise, and that's absolutely crucial, in exchange for some form of um, agreement from Republicans on uh, on making voting a lot easier. Now, I know this sounds kind of naive and pie in the sky, but I'm really just talking about ideals here, like what we should generally sort of try to articulate as as being a desirable goal now is it possible that and, and and i should say i don't think what you're saying there necessarily is all that high in the sky um it, well that's good to hear tell me tell me why you think that well it strikes me that i feel both sides have a overly simplistic view of well let's let's let's, let's just stay in the realm of uh voting laws for the for the for the moment okay uh, there is a belief on the Republican side, it seems, that they need to make uh, voting uh, somewhat restrictive, you know, put more obstacles to ensure that people who only are sort of really committed to voting are, are voting and not just any sort of rando who shows up. I don't right. know if I'm, if I'm being a little crude, I apologize, but... Uh, no, no, that's fine. Uh, and, and Democrats seem to believe if only everybody could vote, if you, you proposed the automatic voter registration as, as one of your bigger reforms, uh, if, if that pool of voters was broadened, well, the people are inherently with us. So, so long as more people are voting, then they're more lucky to vote for us as Democrats. Uh, and is it possible that both sides 
have it wrong. Uh, I mean, obviously, from I mean, you and I would agree that um, more voting is good. People should not be disenfranchised. I'm not. I'm not quibbling that on a matter of principle. Uh, but I wonder if it's necessarily the case that if there were lower barriers to voting, that Democrats, big D Democrats, would necessarily benefit. Right. I, I think that's an important point. I try to stress in the book that there's no reason to see that as purely a pro-Big D de- uh, democratic reform. Because if if I understand the bulk of the punditry about the 2016 election correctly, we've been told that Trump tapped into a pool of voters and voter discontent that other Republicans could not, right? And so it, if that's the case, then if you'd think that if Republicans make it easier for disaffected whites and and poor whites to vote, then why wouldn't they gain from that? I, you know, it, it's just, it seems to me to be a red herring when they, when they say we only want to make voting easier because it helps us. I mean, isn't there some research that vote by mail, for example, has uh, increased voting amongst older whites, which are more of a natural Republican constituency? Am I, am I remembering that correctly? I don't recall that particular research, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, I'm, I'm pulling from memory. so. But I, I think that's right. I, I, mean, I mean, it seems plainly obvious that if there are socioeconomic, that, that, if, if, so, that if, if there are socioeconomic factors associated with um, why some people don't vote, which we know is the case from a lot of the research, then why wouldn't that apply to, to the types of um, um, downscale voters who vote Republican that Trump tapped and energized. I mean, the fault line in 2016, in certainly amongst the white community, was college educated versus non college educated. Uh, and if the non college educated are the constituency that votes less historically, why wouldn't lower barriers to voting get more of those people out to the polls and help Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree. And, and you know, the, you, there's no way you'll ever get conservatives to admit that we're making this argument in good faith, but. I think we are. So in, in addition to uh, vote, to voting laws, um, there's also a presumption uh, with gerrymandering. Uh, and I, sh- well, I, sh- I shouldn't just say presumption. I mean, it is a fact that Republicans drew the lines to benefit themselves when they exceeded a lot of state legislatures after the 2010 census. Um, this is pretty par for the course. Democrats have written lines to favor themselves plenty of times over the course of history. Um, uh, I think there was one example that was a bit more outside of the box when they did an extra redraw in Texas after the initial redraw because uh, they had seized more power in, in Texas. Um, right. And I think clearly Republicans pushed the envelope uh, in in a, in a sort of more concerted and broader way than I think we've seen in the past. Well, there's also there's also better technology for it, right? I mean, you you can you can be more precise with your with, with your gerrymandering techniques, uh, which in theory, if Democrats had a good 2020, uh, if they wanted to reciprocate, uh, not only could they, but that would not be outside the norm because that's what you know gerrymandering has all, always been. But the I think there's a counter argument, which is as much as it's helped Republicans from 2010 to 2018, and we're we're talking now in mid-October of 2018, we don't know what's going to happen in the 2018 midterms, but it looks like Democrats will at least take the House. And that might be in part because the gerrymandering the Republicans did spread them very thinly. They, they 
concentrated Democrats in deep blue areas, spread Republican votes more thinly across the country, and that leaves them vulnerable to a quote-unquote blue wave because they have fewer Republican votes per district. Um, So is there something natural in the gerrymandering process that still allows for pendulum swings? It doesn't mean once one party wins, the other party doesn't stand a chance. I mean, I guess the problem with that is that it requires the wave for it to kick in, right? Yeah, um, but the, but these waves tend to happen, don't they? I mean, they, there's always some back and forth. But it, it should we should always, you know, it should always be representative. Is, is should be the, the the north star. You could absolutely make the argument that let's have let's have independent commissions. Uh, and I think you make this argument in the book, it's of independent commissions, take it out of the hands of state legislatures, out of the hands of politics, just, you know, you just draw a bunch of boxes so it's not all these squiggly lines. Uh, there's a certain argument for that. There's no reason to assume that that's going to be better for Democrats over Republicans, although some Democrats seem to think things would be naturally more in our favor if we did things that way. Right. I, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think they'd be naturally more in Democrats' favor relative to what Republicans have done in the last decade. And and so, you know, the Republicans and, and conservatives, the ones who engage this argument in bad faith, kind of rig, rig the debate by by essentially making that point, right? They, they, they essentially say, oh, you're just trying to, you know, you're just trying to do what's good for your party, which, and what that does is it precludes any sort of actual striving for fairness right because what they're essentially saying is if you want to make it more fair you're just doing that to benefit your party and and that just that just seems like an absurd argument to me on its face now another issue about governing norms that's gotten a lot of attention lately in the wake of the neil gorsuch and brett kavanaugh confirmations and those in the wake of the Merrick Garland uh, uh, blockade at the end of the Obama administration is how should Democrats respond to this? Uh, And there are greater calls for court packing. Um, Michael Avenatti, who may well run for president, has explicitly said any whoever the Democratic nominee should be should be for expanding the court uh, two seats so we can fill them uh, uh, once we're in power. and you have some people talking about uh, Supreme Court uh, term limits uh, to make these less of a high stakes uh, affair in theory. Um, and on the other side of the of the coin, you have more and more Democrats who are uh, on the moderate side saying, maybe we made a mistake in lowering and uh, getting rid of the judicial filibuster for lower court judges, which Republicans then added Supreme Court uh, picks uh, as well, not being exempt from filibusters. Maybe if we take the Senate, we'll, we'll bring the filibuster back. And then the folks who are more uh, less impressed with governing norms said, oh, you goody goody Democrats, uh, you're falling into the trap again. Um, where do you come out on, the, on this whole debate? Well, I, I'm certainly not in favor of restoring the judicial filibuster. I, I don't understand that argument at all. I mean, the, the Republicans would just do away with it when when they wanted to later anyway, um, right? I, I mean, well, well, it depends and, when you do. If Democrats did it in 2019 with Trump still in office, you're making it harder for Trump to appoint judges, and you, it, so it, in theory, you could say, look. 
Obama lowered it in 2013. They got a whole Reed, bunch yeah. of lower with with Reed's help, of course. Um, Obama got a whole bunch of judges after that. You know, Obama got as many judges as George Bush did at the lower court level. Um, so Trump exploited that. He got a bunch of judges in his first two years. Let's call it a wash. Bring it back, and because we know if one party does, and the other party is going to do, we're going to be back where we start all over again. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I mean this probably makes me a procedural squish, but. I guess I, I, my inclination is sort of in a very general sense, and I, I really want to stress that, that I mean this generally. My inclination is not to try and treat these rules as purely tools for partisan manipulation and partisan gain. And that's that's why I like the term limits um, pr- uh, proposals. And, and I'm, I'd be open to doing it how you know in, in a variety of ways, but it strikes me that the goal of that is something that, that is a lot more defensible, right? Which is to de-escalate these Supreme Court battles and lessen the stakes of them. And that's something that applies to both sides and could conceivably be a reform that people agree on. In fact, you know, Matt Lewis, the conservative podcaster who I talked to yesterday about this, agreed that that would be something that would make sense for everybody. Now, not a lot of conservatives are in that position, but it just seems to me that if we're going to say, okay, well, we'll jack up the filibuster here and benefit as much as we can and the full understanding that they're going to cut it down there. I mean, what are we saying here about the point of these rules? So if you don't go for judicial term limits, you need a constitutional amendment for that? I think you, um, yes, I think you do. Uh, you, Rick Perry has proposed one along those lines, for instance. So that's so one that that's a high bar. <laughs> you, you it's might, a very high bar. You might not get there. Um, but let's say you court packing is a pretty high bar too. Oh, I, 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 you know, I wrote a piece myself criticizing Avenatti, and I've written about how uh, I think I think I think the left has a distorted history of FDR's court packing. There's there's two. One is that, and I generally agree with you, FDR blew it on court packing. It was a political disaster. Um, his party turned on him, and it, it, FDR that went overboard in 1938. He, he proposed court packing in 37. He was so mad that conservative Democrats in 38, he tried to primary them. That was a disaster, and he drove those guys into the Republicans' arms, and his New Deal reforms were blocked from that point forward. The other argument is, well, the Supreme Court hopped two after FDR threaded, uh, pushed that. They, there's the so-called switch in time that saved the nine. Justice Orrin Roberts changed his voting on uh, minimum wage, state minimum wage laws. He upheld them instead of striking them down. So FDR you know, lost the battle but won the war. And where that whole debate gets complicated is Owen Roberts switched his vote before FDR made the proposal. Um, and so the argument that would complicate it, uh, although but that was but the switch was made before, but it hadn't gone public yet. So F- FDR didn't know the public didn't know. Uh, right. And then the chief justice Hughes said, okay, we got to wait a month till we actually release this decision. So it doesn't look like we're just responding to FDR, but people still drew those connections. The counter argument, you know, can sorry, I, go on. Can I, can I just say that, you know, the, 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 the core assumption behind the court packing scheme is that, it really is going to be a full-blown disaster for progressives down the line. And there are two points to make about that. Like, first is, you know, win back the White House and both houses of Congress and pass Medicare for all first <laughs> before you start worrying about whether the court is going to strike it down, right? 
Um, the second would be, I'm not 100% convinced we really know how this court's going to behave. I mean, I obviously, I think they're going to be awful on voting rights, probably on abortion. But I, I'm not 100% sure, at least, or put it this way, I'm not as sure as some liberals and progressives seem to be that things like Medicare for all in whatever form it were passed, if it were passed and signed, would actually be struck down. Struck down. Does that sound like a, another crazy pie in the sky um, theory? I'm just not sure. Well, not to me. I mean, well, but this also, I think, cuts against the term limits argument. I mean, the beauty of the court historically is the lifetime appointment. Once you're there, you whoever got you there, you don't owe them anything. You can do whatever the heck you want. Uh, and that, that uh, dynamic of the court in recent decades has hurt conservatives more than liberals. It's conservatives that tend to drift leftward once they get there. That's why they keep, that's why they've been trying <laughs> yeah. to escalate their vetting of these guys. Right. So they know what they, they, they know what they get when they get there. Right. But even John, but John Roberts upheld Obamacare, which you know, would, you would not have expected going in. So I, I can't say I'm like a super optimist that Roberts and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are going to drift, but you really never know for sure. Uh, and with that, I don't even know if it takes much drift, though, right? I mean, there's a line in, in Roberts's opinion upholding Obamacare that says Congress may tax and spend. Right. And and Roberts may feel even more pressure on him now that Candy's gone. If there's anyone who's going to be a swing, it's going to be him. It's his court. It's the Roberts court. He might say, I don't want to be known as the guy that divided the country into two two separate nations. I want to be the guy known who's brought the country together. So maybe I'm going to play some kind of constraining role on these other guys. I mean, it, it, I, can't, I can't know. It's possible. Right. I, I, think, I think that's a possibility. And, and the other thing, by the way, is the, the other issue that's often cited along these lines is, is gun is gun regulations, right? In which they, you know, the court, as you know, uh, essentially created an individual gun right, um, which I, I actually I, I actually support. By the way, I think progressives should adjust to the idea of an individual gun right, um, and. For this reason, this leads to my argument on this. I'm not convinced that that that, that uh, the Second Amendment or or the court are the obstacle to serious, far-reaching gun reforms. And you know, I'm supported in this by Adam Winkler, the scholar. You know, from from I forget which I think he's UCLA maybe, and he's a he's a gun gun rights and and gun 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 law historian of of the of the first order and. He doesn't think the Second Amendment or the court's the obstacle either. I think you could easily, if there were some way of passing expanded background checks, I, I don't know if it would be struck down. I, I, I think maybe an assault weapons ban might be, but I'm not even sure we should want that for a whole bunch of other separate reasons we could talk about. But my point is that serious and, and meaningful gun reform could easily survive this court. I we're talking with Greg Sargent, author of An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy, in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics, um, the disinformation part—you you talk about the the state of our media in the Trump presidency and how the media has responded—and it's—and I know you were you were actively uh, reporting and blogging in the Bush years, as was I. And I, I I feel like if you took a liberal blogger from the Bush years and you showed them how the media was responding to Trump 
with the fact checks and uh, using the L word, using the lie word, uh, being very aggressive with Trump surrogates. It would blow their mind <laughs> how the media was being aggressive in the wake of Trump. Yet you still see people feel that the media is is not doing its due diligence or even actively abetted Trump's election. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point, and and not I, I at risk of showing both of our age here. You know, the, the kids today don't know how bad it was in the Bush years, um, <laughs> and and you know that's really what gave rise to the blogosphere, or at least it was one main thing that gave. Rise. I mean, I I don't know how you found your way into it, but the way I found my way into into blogging was dissatisfaction with the way the 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 major news organizations were responding to to Bush and the Iraq war. It, it, it became, you know, overwhelmingly obvious that the basic conventions of political uh, reporting as they were being practiced widely at the news organizations w- were just completely insufficient to deal with what Bush was up to with the kind of, you know, massive official disinformation campaign around Iraq and, and then the politicization of it in the, the, the 2000. Uh, sorry, the, the politicization of September 11th in the 2002 midterms. I have the chronology backwards there. You know, the the the, the 2002 midterms came before the run up to Iraq. But you, you get the point, right? We all ended up blogging because we just couldn't stand the way the press was covering this stuff. And and so in many ways, the press I think has has not has both enormously outdone that period at a time of maybe, you know, similar challenge, um, but also has, has in many ways performed pretty, pretty, uh, pretty very well, I think. And I think you'd agree with that, right? I just think there are still many problems remaining. Yeah, I don't think you have a hard time uh, not knowing what's going on. I mean, some, some of that is the help of people inside the Trump White House yeah. leaking stuff to the press. I mean, the tough question is, as much as the press is doing, there still are large segments of the country that just don't believe what the press says. Uh, and that is a difficult problem to address, but I wouldn't put that on the fault of the media. Right. I, I mean, I think we all, every one of us can do a better job in, in, in challenging that. And, and, you know, what I try to argue in the book, relying heavily on the work of some other people like Jay Rosen at New York University, who you know, um, is that the press needs to work harder to kind of reaffirm and restate its core values, the prof- profession's core values. And, and I think at the core of that, or at the heart of doing that is the need to be forthright about the challenge it's facing. And, and I think you still see some problems on that front, right? There still seems to be a reluctance in, in many quarters to acknowledge that that Trump is essentially trying to, to, with the help of what seems to be an active movement of some kind, uh, trying to destroy their institutional role in democracy. And, and I, I mean, you know, the conservatives have attacked the press for 50 years, but I think it's never quite been like this. What do you think? Well, uh, I mean, the right has attacked the media for a long time. I, I think it's sort of like with gerrymandering. Their techniques have gotten very uh, <laughs> refined over time. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they have the, the added gain of a you know, demagogic cult of personality leader who, right. who, who echoes what they have to say. It, George H.W. Bush, you had, they had bumper stickers say, annoy the liberal media, reelect George Bush. So what, he's not the first president to attack the, the, the media writ large, but to right. you know, go after individual institutions, individual reporters 
supporters, you know, whip up, you know, a frenzy at the rallies. You know, it, it validates the critique within, you know, Red America in a way that is, I think is is much more intense than what we're used to. But the but the the basic outlines of it are not new. The funny the funny thing is that the you know the annoy the liberal media it, it almost sounds like comically tame compared to what we're dealing with now and and in a way that kind of tells the story right like you know, Nixon was probably the most vocal in attacking the press um, of you know in the last in the last half century or so right wouldn't you say um well and for, for the folks who might know we had a great podcast with the author of they said no to nixon um f- a few episodes ago and talking about how you know nixon actually would use that enemies list he tried to get the irs to uh you know at, go after folks on his enemies list including members of the media and the irs stood up to him so yeah the, the, we things have been bad before <laughs> sort of the, the more more of that story I, I think maybe you could say it's tough to the comparison between Nixon and Trump is sort of tough to, to figure out. But one difference, I think, an enormous difference is that Trump has a much larger kind of siloed off media infrastructure carrying this out, which I tr- for him than Nixon did, um, which I try to get into in the book. But that aside, Nixon aside for 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 a second, right? I mean, if you compare Trump to Reagan or H.W. and even maybe to W., um, it seems to me that there's just another order of of aggression to what Trump is doing in the following way. It's a fundamental effort to completely destroy the press's institutional role in a way that I'm not sure we've seen before. In other words, there is no legitimacy to the role it's playing. It's, it's really an effort to kind of obliterate that and, and really develop an alternative reality that, um, that, that kind of exists with the help of this enormous infrastructure, which, as you say, is, is sort of much more savvy than, than anything like it in the past. I know uh, your time is tight. Uh, I do have... Uh, I, we, could, we could do another 15. Okay, if you want. all right. Um, I, I, so, I, don't, I don't want to forget, I've, I give the opportunity to super fans of the show to pose questions uh, in advance, although they haven't had a chance to read the book yet, of, co- uh, of course. Uh, but one of my uh, listeners wanted to ask you, uh, how do you think your own writing fits into the polarization and tribalism present in the contemporary United States? How do you place, uh, how, where, where do you fit in the puzzle? Uh, how does your place in the puzzle affect what you produce? This is a really complicated and good question, and, and I think I'm sure you've wrestled with this too, right? Like, so people like us, right? You know, we we want to write with a point of view, right? So obviously, we're going to be extremely aggressive about critiquing the opposition, and that gets people angry and so forth. And and you know, um, we get angry at at them, and and so you know we're probably in, in that limited sense not helping. On the other hand, that you know I think people like you and me are trying to do this responsibly, right? We're trying to. I try to report a lot. I mean, and and my whole the whole what I've striven for for a long time is trying to figure out a way, if there's a way to do this, of of being quite opinionated, but also being doing it with integrity and and doing it in a way that that people can rely on the validity of in terms of the use of data and the fair-mindedness in in the treatment of of information and facts and so 
you know, I, what I'd like to think is that when people like us stand up for the core liberal democratic values of the press, even as we are being pretty aggressive and forceful and or at least trying to be in, 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 in being opinionated, we're not harming the discourse and and the kind of state of things in a way that say the 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 bad faith merchants on the right are who are not just opining but you know a lot of the time just completely cooking facts and doing it in an entirely instrumental way and i don't think you and i and and a lot of us on the left do that kind of instrumental uh, manipulation and and that, to me that's the real one of the main threats that we're we don't pose well i i'd just to go back to our previous uh conversation about where we've come from from the bush years you know there was a critique in the bush years that people should not be reluctant to give their opinion and give their analysis so long as they're being transparent about where they're coming from. Right. I agree. So don't, don't, don't pretend you, you don't have a bias, just have it and be honest about it and write from that perspective and let the reader judge accordingly. Uh, and I think we have, you know, you, you and I, the writing that we do probably wouldn't have gotten published you know, 15 years ago because media institutions didn't want to publish that kind of stuff for fear would seem like they were taking a side. Uh, and that gave us the blogosphere. That's right. That's right. Uh, and you, maybe you argue there, the downside of that is it's given Trump an easier target. Look, the, you, these are the liberal media. They admit it. They're on the left and this is what, and they make up this stuff and, and don't believe a word that they're saying. Um, but I think the, the net of it is, I would argue, is still a positive that we're getting, we have a much richer dialogue now. Right. And I think a key, a key point I'd like to stress here is that I think you and I want conservative voices out there. We don't think that, you know, conservative voices inherently, you know, degrade, lead to more polarization. We want a real debate. Right. Well, it, and you know, like opinion is, or even ideology. It's, it's bad faith and, and manipulation and the instrumental treatment of information and facts. That's the problem. Well, and I, I can bring receipts to that debate because I do my show with Matt Lewis, who you just spoke to uh, over at bloggingheads.tv called the DMZ. So we have plenty of good left-right conversation, but we try to keep it fact-based. And that's where the left always gets you know, their minds explode when they see folks on the right not being you know moored by facts. Yeah, I mean, look at the treatment of the. I mean, look at how Fox News and, and certain segments of the of the of the right wing blogosphere are treating the uh, the the battle between Trump and Mueller. It's like it's 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 like it, it is it's just basically pure propaganda at this point. There's like no no standards whatsoever, and, and they don't even pretend otherwise. It seems to me anyway. So to circle back to your book, what should people do about that fact? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I, you know, this is a tough one, but my best answer to that, and it's not a great answer, and I think we really don't know how all of this stuff's going to end up, unfortunately, um, is that we just have to be constructive in standing up for the core values of a, of a, of a you know, good, serious, non-frivolous um, media and and you know i think it's i think we face real problems right like as i tried to argue in there um we don't really know what the long-term impact of this kind of full-throated and and concerted and very widespread effort to totally delegitimize institutions such as the media and law enforcement in the minds of 
millions and millions of Americans. We don't know what the long-term impact of that's going to be. And, you know, there's cause for worry, but I think there's also sort of a, my general sense is we're getting through it. What's your sense? Um, I mean, I, I, people tend to think that this is, you know, the dark, the darkest hour and everything's going to collapse. And I, and I can't, my, my genetic optimism is certainly challenged in these times, (laughs) Um, but you know, it, it is certainly plausible uh, you know, just as you know, you know, Nixon won 49 states and Jimmy Carter you know, and 1974 was a great Democratic year and Jimmy Carter won in 76. Um, you know, uh, it, the pendulum can swing very quickly in, in, in the American political system. If Democrats take the House in 2018 and they have a good 2020, all these things that people are panicking about might just completely fade into the ether. Absolutely. Um, so I, right. I, I don't I mean, and, and you go back to 2000 when you know people could legitimately argue that an election was outright stolen. Right. Uh, and people started to focus on the voting machines. Oh, the voting machines are going to get us. There's no way Democrats can ever win if if this whole thing is rigged. Well, six years later, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, uh, and Barack Obama was elected eight years later. So, you know, it, anything that you don't like in the American political system can usually be solved by winning the next election, and it's still possible to win the next election. That is so true. I mean, the answer is voting, right? <laughs> I mean. I think I think that's a pretty big theme of this of of what I tried to argue. You know, you got to win some elections, and and but the whole key is that okay, if you have a good twenty eighteen, don't just go away, right? It's not over. It's never over. You got to win background on the state level. Like I mean, to me, one of the big things I'm really watching for in this cycle is the the number of governorships that flip. You know, and and the state legislative gains, because that's the stuff that's going to really set up what happens in the next decade in many ways on on numerous fronts. And, you know, as you I think your point is really important that that, you know, things could really just seem a lot different with victories in the next two elections. I mean, I, I would argue that even if 2018 goes well for Democrats and, you know, they take back the House by a decent margin without maybe losing ground in the Senate, although that, you know. That's sort of it's hard to say what's going to happen there. But if they if they flip, you know, numerous governorships in big states, that gives them a hand to, you know, veto some of these terrible gerrymandered partisan maps um, on the on the congressional level in the next decade. Look at Pennsylvania. Look at what happened there when a Democratic governor forced it into the courts. Right. Right. Um, the result was that a hideously one of the most the hideously gerrymandered maps in the country was made more fair and now Democrats are going to pick up probably numerous seats as a result. I mean, you could see um, governors, Democratic governors, putting the brakes on bad maps in, in multiple big states and, and making a big difference. And I think if 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 this happened, if, you know, if Democrats win back the House and win back a bunch of governorships, then I think we'll all feel a bit better. Uh, last super fan question I have for you is what do you think the odds are of an independent candidate winning the presidency in 2020? And if I could try try to tie that back into the book, um, if we're having a breakdown, if, if, I mean, you talk about, you know, democracy and decline in this book, uh, or at least the threat of that, uh, if we're having a weakening of faith institutions and in parties, um, does that a make it more plausible that independent could win? But also B, does that also mean that if there's less fealty to the Democratic Party and you have a split, um, that that might abet 
uh, Trump. If you have a legitimate third party candidate, does that make it easier for Trump to win with, you know, 38 percent of the vote? I mean, I, you know, I, I think I think like most people have gotten out of the prediction business after what happened in 2016. So I would just wouldn't dare predict anything. Right. Um, in terms of an independent candidacy, I, I will say it just doesn't seem that likely. You know, the, the thing it seems to me that that people might be overreading the Bernie phenomenon a little bit. And I mean, I'd like to hear what you think about this. It sort of seems to me that he grabbed up a space in the Democratic electorate that previous insurgent candidates have also grabbed up before. And frankly, I thought, and and I'm really in a minority on this. And so I understand why some people might view this with skepticism. I actually thought the process that unfolded was pretty decent, right? Um, during the convention, the Bernie forces and the Hillary forces got together and hammered out a, a, one of the most progressive uh, platforms for a major Democrat in a long time, uh, for a Democratic presidential candidate in a long time. And I was on the phone with Bernie's people through that process and you know, doing reporting and things. And, and one thing that really struck me was the disconnect between what they were saying privately and what you were reading on pro-Bernie social media, right? Pro-Bernie social media was alive with they're selling us out again, they're doing this, they're doing that, you know, the establishment's crushing us, right? What they were saying privately was, you know, they're actually being kind of reasonable. <laughs> you know, we're disagreeing about stuff, and but that's okay. Like, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're hammering things out, we're not going to get everything we want, but we're getting some things we want. And so, I still feel like, I, I mean... I don't really know how to gauge this well, but it, it feels to me like the Democratic Party is, is is still in pretty good shape in that sense. What do you think? Um, I half agree. Um, I mean, I, I think that the, there's a there's a Bernie credit analysis that comes out of 2016 that sort of the establishment's out to get us and they don't respect us They don't and they don't want to take us seriously. And I think what is true is the establishment doesn't want to swallow the entire Bernie agenda because they don't think it's going to play well in the general, but they're acutely aware they need the, their votes. They, so they don't want to totally dismiss them and treat them badly because they, if they if they take a walk and go home, then they can't win the election. So they, they're going to play nice at the end of the day. Um, but that's the end of the day. We're going to have a very long 2020 primary process, which I assume begins in November 2018. Uh, so you really, really could be a 20 month uh, affair. And because it's be fun, though, well, <laughs> maybe not so much fun. I, I think it's going to be extremely painful and uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I agree. <laughs> because, I mean, lots of things to write about, but it's going to be hard to sit through. Uh, I mean, because the the 2016 loss did not have a consensus post-mortem you know when george mcgovern lost in 72 everyone was like well that guy was too far left let's not do that next time and we and they didn't in this time it was the bernie folks feel hillary was too close to wall street the hillary folks think that bernie uh, undermined her in the primary by being unrealistic and so that's not settled so that is that is sure to be relitigated in some way and you have the added element of having the most diverse field we're probably ever going to see. We're going to have multiple women, multiple non-white candidates. So here you have Elizabeth Warren, just to give it a, a taste of what might be to come. She tries to solve this Pocahontas issue that Trump's put on, on her shoulders, and she gets uh, you know, attacked vociferously by the Cherokee Nation, although other tribes have been much more generous to her. It just shows that it's very easy 
to uh, fall into pitfalls. Uh, and I don't think she's going to be the last Democrat that's going to fall into some kind of pitfall. Whether And that's true for, I think, for white men, for women, for non-whites. I, mean, I think anybody might, might have a gaffe that's going to lead to a lot of uncomfortable, maybe productive in the long run, but certainly uh, difficult to, 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 to live through in the time when you're trying to win an election. Uh, and I think that's just going to be a lot of complicated cross currents that they're going to have to navigate. Right, right. No, I absolutely agree with that, Bill. I just, I guess what, I, what I'd, I'd like to stress is that I, I just find the, I, the, the threat of a breakaway to see, it seems a little implausible to me right now. And, and, and I'll tell you, one thing that is really worth noting is that a lot of these incredibly savvy uh, leftist uh, operatives, right, are very much not looking at that as an option. They, they, they've decided that they can have an impact, and, and they're turning out to be quite right about this by running leftist candidates in primaries and winning. And, and, and you know, they're doing that. And, and so, you know, to me, that signals that, I mean, I don't know where that ends up. As you say, there could be an enormous amount of friction and division. I think that's obviously true. But it seems to me that 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 even even the the, the really the, the tough minded progressive activists don't really have a breakaway in mind. Well, they probably, they probably aren't plotting for that. But let's let's say, for example, you know, there's this huge appetite for a populist, for a, a non-white candidate, for a fresh face. But Joe Biden wins with 40 percent of the of the primary vote because he's the former VP and he's got a lot of support with older voters and he's good in the Rust Belt. Do a lot of populists say, oh, this thing is so rigged. <laughs> it's, it's, it's deeply rigged. We got to get the hell out of here. And on the converse, let's say it's a Bernie or Warren or it's Michael Avenatti, for Pete's sake. Um, does a Michael Bloomberg or a right. John Hickenlooper or a Mark Cuban or a Howard Schultz, do they say, we're not going to have this be a choice between two wacky doodles we're gonna we're gonna fund a, a centrist third party candidacy and the vote gets split and trump wins so uh, you certainly make it sound plausible i mean i it, it depends so much on how the process goes and if they can yeah. navigate i think the friction's inevitable in my opinion but can they navigate that friction so everybody stays together at the end of the day that to me is harder to predict yeah i mean i think it's hard to say whether the, i would think that that the cooler heads on both sides would agree that a split would be a disaster or could be a disaster but as you say if the cooler heads you know lose control of the process who knows what happens well if you want to have an optimistic takeaway from this show i suggest you get an uncivil war <laughs> taking back our democracy in an age of trumpian disinformation and thunderdome politics by greg Sargent, with lots of useful and productive advice on how to survive our current state of affairs thank you so much for being on the show greg Sargent. thanks bill great time 